tuning in to listen to our next episode on our podcast iBuzz produced by Animal Concepts. My name is Sabrina Brando. I'm the founder of Animal Concepts and we help you care for animals and for yourself and support you in your other goals such as conservation, education and research. Today I'm delighted to welcome my guest Bill Winhall who is the manager and principal consultant at Marine Mammal Care Consulting LLC and who has a very long career in marine mammal care and welfare, and was also selected to carry the Olympic torch for the 1996 Olympics. I think we're in for a lot of stories. Welcome, Bill. Oh, thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Yes, it's really lovely to talk to you again. We were kind of reminiscing just before we hit record, and it's probably 17 years ago we saw each other last and when you gave me a tour of the wild arctic it was really exciting and um, we always like to kick off the podcast with a short story of like an early connection you have with animals so perhaps you could start with that oh sure i um uh as as a youngster a preteen, i had a keen interest in nature and wildlife and uh, actually near our home I would spend a great deal of time in a large field. This field had butterflies, lizard, frogs, dragonflies, birds, rabbits, all kinds of neat animals, and it was fun exploring there. And, and also when our family would go on vacation, we'd go to Lake Tahoe, and I enjoyed long walks, exploring the wilderness and checking out the wildlife. And uh, actually to this day, um, I will sit in our backyard, we're right near a, um, natural preserve and I enjoy the howling of the coyotes and we actually have a frog in our backyard who croaks it in the evening too which is neat there's a, a lake a, quite a distance from our house but uh, we can hear the frogs at night and I like watching the different birds and uh, in our trees and uh, we got an owl that visits us in the evening and uh, late night on our neighbor's roof we got rabbits that eat my wife's plants. <laughs> That's always fun to watch. And, and on a warm day, lizards climb the side of our house. And we even have a roadrunner that will occasionally hop over our fence looking for a lizard type treat. So uh, I, I've been interested in nature and wildlife from the very start. I, I never thought of it as a career, though. No, and that's what's interesting for me, you know, talking to you and learning more about your background that you actually, you know, you have a master's of science in counseling and marriage and family and child counseling. So perhaps can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, your background and then how did you end up working with animals ultimately? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> well, Excellent. it just happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I was interested in playing professional baseball and uh, that didn't turn out. I got hurt and I ended up sitting on the bench. So I said, I better start studying something. And uh, like my mother, I loved the ocean and it did body surfing, boogie boarding, and later board surfing and uh, decided I'd get serious about school. Some of the classes that I took 
while uh, I was playing baseball, uh, all you had to do was show up and you get a C in one of the classes. And actually, I did enjoy it. It was a psychology class that I could write in my grade. So that's what my education was initially. So I, I started getting more serious and uh, ended up getting a degree in marine biology and uh, developed an interest because some of the classes, like in psychology, you learn about child development, different stages that children go through and different theories on behavior and psychology, abnormal psychology. And it was interesting to me why people behave the way they do and watching my nephews grow up and stuff, I became more interested in, in that. And, uh, but actually my first job, I think that was part of your question, was uh, I was going, um, I was going to school, getting my degree in uh, marine biology, and uh, I was studying invertebrates and plankton, and uh, wanted to see what the marine mammals were like. Uh, I had uh, read some things about dolphins that sounded interesting, and so I wanted to get up close to them. So I applied for a position at a marine park near my folks place and uh, there was no opening in the marine department but I took a, a job as a tour boat operator giving tours of the Africa part of Marine World Africa USA where I could get in the park and actually interact with some of the marine mammals. They had a dolphin petting pool and a sea lion feeder pool. Um, funny story on one of my boring tours I, I, I ran out of gas in the middle of the ski show lagoon and we started drifting towards uh, a place we called Monkey Island. <laughs> and uh, before my boss could arrive with a can of gas, um, we actually beached and some squirrel monkeys began to show interest in the boat and climbing on the roof and uh, actually were interested in some of the guests at. We had about 25 people on the boat. I jumped off and pushed the boat away from Monkey Island. And so we we're floating in the water ski lagoon. My boss finally made it out. We refueled my boat. And uh, so the ski show could finally proceed after giving me lots of dirty looks. And uh, I finished the tour and uh, at the loading dock with my wet tennis shoes, a nice couple mentioned to me that the tour was more entertaining than the killer whale they saw earlier that day. <laughs> I don't know what was going on in the killer whale show, and I'm not sure that the boat ride was that entertaining as, as uh, I don't know, it's different anyway. But later that summer, uh, a position opened up, a part-time position in the marine mammal department, and it involved preparing and delivering fish to the different show areas, feeding the exhibit animals, and occasionally participating as an extra in the shows. And I later was chosen for the uh, a full-time position. And I know it wasn't because of my excellent boat driving or educational presentations. It was mostly back then, if they thought you were a nice guy and they liked you and, and uh, I happened to surf and they, they liked surfing. So I got the job and I accepted the position. And uh, to my parents' disappointment, um, they wanted me to graduate this put off graduation for another couple of years and uh, they wanted me to graduate and make more money I was making minimum wage and get a real job in fact my dad would uh, 
tell me, I would never do this if I was you. And he must've said that at least 10 times. But another kind of funny story is um, some people from my dad's office, they, uh, they had some pictures, they were sharing some pictures. So one guy was sharing pictures and it had me and the sea lion, the killer whale, and the dolphin shows, and they were saying how neat this was, and they were all, everybody was looking at the pictures, giving my dad a lot of attention, and uh, and he later, and this is kind of funny story, and you know how families are and stuff. He later, uh, when I was over the house uh, for dinner, because kind of right before payday, I would have to go to the folks' house and get a care package and maybe raid their fridge, but. Uh, I, uh, he told me, he goes, you know, if I was in your situation where you are, he goes, I'd like to be doing something like that you're doing. And, and so I pretended like I fainted. I fell on the floor, pretended like I fainted. Uh, and then, and then we had dinner and, uh, because he, he, he did not usually approve of some of the things that I did and, and would never do things. He was more of an office person. I was more of an outdoors person. Excellent. I really love those stories. Yeah, I can already imagine that, you know, this kind of unpredictability of being on a boat and drifting towards the monkey island and, you know, for the animals also uh, something is exciting, but also for the people, you know, talking, like you say, about, you know, what people, how people behave and, yeah, those sorts of surprises. Uh, I can see how suddenly that that boring boat trip wasn't boring at all anymore, <laughs> right? Yeah. And of course, yeah, I think there's still probably people today, parents today, or family or friends who think, you know, a job in animal care is, you know, not really something, get a real job is not really a real job. But I think we have seen an incredible evolution. Uh, you and I talked about that briefly before we started the recording in how our profession, there's so many different professions in our field of animal care and specifically also marine mammal. And so perhaps can you share some stories with us of like the early days of marine mammals and, you know, some of your experiences over, you know, obviously you've seen so many changes. Yeah. So uh, I, I got started in 1978 and uh, some of my exposure to training marine mammals involved uh, sort of controlling the animals or saying, you have control of the animals and if they didn't do what you requested you might say or somebody might say they're messing with me and uh i and i i was not as concerned about how i was perceived i felt we were asking the animals to cooperate and we couldn't control them they could choose to do the behavior or swim away if they wanted to and uh it was up to me to convince the animals that they wanted to perform and work with me. And it was normal for them to occasionally misbehave. Um, either I wasn't communicating effectively or they were testing boundary, which is natural and much like my daughter used to do quite a bit of. And so for me, unlike others during a training session or maybe a show, if the animal misbehave, I did not pull their bucket back and quit on them and say they were done, I would continue with the show with the remaining dolphins. And usually the individual animal would uh, show up on a group behavior and actually do their individual behavior in the show. And I would uh, minimize the reinforcement at first. And then as they continued to be included and cooperate, 
uh, I treated it like normal and uh, we ended up having a better show for the people. And I think uh, the animals knew that. And so for one of the other trainers, once they pulled the bucket back, the animal did not come back and interfered with the show. And uh, another thing that we did that I didn't see a lot of people doing back then, I'm sure at other places they did, but before and after the training sessions, we would stick around and rub the animals down and play with them and even swim with them. And they could choose to interact with us or not, giving them control or the power. And most of the time they would interact with us. And I was hopefully showing the animals that we weren't there just to make them perform and do shows. We were more than someone who tells them what to do and um, withholds food or or whatever with them. So I, I felt that that uh, helped my relationship with some of the animals. Yes, absolutely. Because it is, you know, a collaboration in the sense of, you know, working together. If they don't want to do it, they can swim away. And, and, you know, and I think today we talk a lot about, you know, sometimes people say, oh, the animals are not behaving, right? Or they're like misbehaving. And I'm like, well, they are behaving, but not the way we want to. So <laughs> Okay, uh, you know, and that's okay too, right? If it's a if it's a dialogue and it's working together, then if I ask you, can you are you you know interested to do this behavior? Or can you do it? And they don't want to do it. It's a good answer too, right? So it's an interesting sort of dialogue that, like you say, how do we um, change their mind or how do we provide other options? And uh, yeah, some of the examples that you gave, and then you know they can just join whenever they want. So it's it becomes this sort of and you've been really part over the last, you know, more than 40 years in seeing changes in how we interact with animals and, and definitely also this whole part of, it's not all about food, you know, food is actually, the animals are going to get their food anyway, you know, there's so much more to our relationship with animals than, than food, food is just one thing. So perhaps can you tell us a little bit about, you know, stories or interactions with animals that you had, perhaps other species? in the different behaviors that you've trained or things like that? I'm thinking of a, a wonderful animal. He was a pilot whale, his name was Coco. And he was an unusual pilot whale. I mean, he, he was super, he learned quickly and uh, he cooperated and he interacted with us quite a bit when we go in the water and swim with him. And uh, he, uh, Kevin Walsh and I, we worked together and we trained a jump ride with this animal and it only took 11 days. So, um, and that was probably mostly uh, me learning how to stay on his back. He would dive down to the bottom of the pool, 20, 22 foot pool, turn around and jump over a hurdle. And I had to hang on and stuff, but he, he never, I never remember him refusing to do that behavior. And I thought that was weird. It, it must be, there must be something about it that he likes because I, I'm not sure I would enjoy somebody being on my back as much in doing that behavior. I would once in a while say, I don't feel like doing it. Sometimes we'd have seven shows. And a funny part of that is I go into the lunch area after doing like three shows, be lunchtime, and I'm sitting down thinking I was real cool. I'm a trainer, I do this jump ride and the dolphins, I work with the dolphins and stuff, trying to impress people, I think. And then my sinuses would drain. <laughs> right, right into my my lunch plate, and so then everybody get up and leave. But uh, so I wasn't so impressive as I thought. 
a, a cool story too is was about an older dolphin that uh, I worked with, and she eventually lost her eyesight. She used to do part of our show, it was an Olympic theme show, and she would jump, do a high jump to a baton, uh, as well as a long jump over two hurdles. Well, she couldn't jump and grab the baton anymore, and she ran into the hurdles because her her vision was so bad. So I um, I felt like I wanted to keep her involved and stimulated, and so we did a water ballet, and actually a young animal would do the water ballet with one of the gals that uh, nobody wants to see an old guy doing a water ballet with the dolphin, but uh, I ended up teaching her uh, a water ballet and um, not thinking it would even go on the show, but she did so well that it was it was in the show and uh, and she liked it, she did it, and it was fun and it was stimulating for her and i I thought that that was kind of neat for an older animal instead of, okay, you're, you know, all you do is bows and, you know, soccer or something. It was kind of nice to keep her um, active and part of the show. And I'm not sure how dolphins feel about that, but it made me feel good. Well, I, I think, you know, it's a super important point you're making there that obviously as animals, we have become very, very good at caring for animals. A lot of animals grow very old in our care. And how do we then, you know, provide different sorts of stimulation and also adapt the training to, you know, perhaps changes in sensory perceptions like you just talked about. And also, obviously, you know, she keeps doing it and she was clearly interested. So I'm really glad to hear those sorts of examples, because indeed, like you say, sometimes we make their world even smaller, but it's actually like, in what way can we keep their world big and different? And uh, perhaps, you know, by finding other ways of getting them involved and keeping them involved. So I really appreciate you giving that example. And the other thing I think is important that, you know, you've been in the field for a long time and now we're listening to stories of then uh, historical perspectives also in what, you know, we would be doing with animals, whether it was surfing or diving and being on their backs to changing also to different sorts of behaviors that we, we've also heard changes from the word show into presentation and interactions, right? You, you've been all through all those processes. So perhaps can you talk to us a little bit about what sort of changes you have seen in you know, the way that the presentations evolved over time and maybe even examples of behaviors you used to do that you wouldn't do anymore today? Sure. Um... One of the interesting things that you just brought up too was uh, dealing with older animals. I do inspections and welfare audits, and I, I do look for um, making it easy for the animal to get out of the water. Let's say in a wa older walrus and stuff, you want to uh, make it so that an animal is not going to have to uh, jump up and out of the water um, as they're older. So. Uh, that's always something we remind people, especially if they redo an exhibit as well, um, to deal with that. Yes, we, we've changed, uh, like uh, we had dolphins that uh, do tail walk and a ball balance on their nose, and we, we don't really do that anymore. And uh, I know that they aren't doing some of the rides, like we, we wouldn't be doing that pilot whale ride that the, the pilot the jump ride that the pilot whale seemed, seemed to enjoy now. Um, and the stories that, that we give more education information. And I, I know as I've worked 
in, in this business, I've tried to emphasize education, conservation, and research. So anytime, like at the Wild Arctic, you, you came there and visited one time, Ann Bowles from Hubs would be doing some research. And if she wanted to use any of the animals over there, we would train whatever it was that she needs. Like uh, we had a hearing study with our polar bears to, um, to see what effect sounds have on uh, denning mothers because uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife don't like you doing those ice roads that take you out to an oil platform um, to be less than a mile away from the bear den. So we were, and there was a lot, at that time, there was more and more activity happening in the Arctic. So they wanted to see the different sounds that would affect the females um, to get a better picture of what they might need to do there. And so we, uh, we did do um, studies with the two females. And then an interesting story is the male, we had two females and a male, the male would be at the back door um, trying to check out and see and sniff under the door, which there wasn't much room for him to see or sniff, but he seemed very interested, um, or at least that was our perception. So we included him in the study too, even though they didn't need or necessarily want that information, we got it anyway, and they were very pleased. He did very well. It was a go, no-go, and uh, instead of uh, brainstem stimulation, it was with behavioral uh, techniques. And uh, so uh, more and more, it's important that we're doing research to help animals that are in the wild. And I believe a big reason we have these animals is, is not necessarily for money or entertainment, but it's for education, conservation, research, whether it's a breeding program or, you know, doing so much work that uh, SeaWorld did with uh, the killer whales and stuff to help different groups out in the wild that might be suffering. And uh, um, so, and we tried to educate people too. And I just remember at Marine World Africa USA, when I was there in 78, um, one family from the Midwest um, said, hey, we don't see any tracks. How, how, how are the killer whales doing the behaviors like they were machines? You know, we don't see the tracks. And so it's, it's important to, to let the people know how special these animals are and uh, different things about them. They become more interested in the animals and the environment and they'll do more. And there have been studies where we have helped and uh, change people's behavior. And uh, I, I believe that's the case. So a lot more about education. We talk about research and we talk about biology and uh, trying to get people more into that than, um, you know, so-and-so goes to college or um, spooky kooky castle or something, which I don't think is bad, but I think it's better having, uh, educating the people and giving them a realistic realistic picture of these animals. Yes, absolutely. And I love how you talk about, uh, we are in the process of, of uh, editing a book on, on caring for elderly animals. Like we already spoke about how we get so good at caring for animals in human care that we really have to think about, you know, what do the environments of these older animals need to look like? And we're going to hear more about you and your role in zoo and aquarium inspections later. But yeah, what a great point, like how, you know, entries and exits and 
and those and and keeping animals involved in that. And then the other aspects, which I really think is important that you're bringing up, whether it was you know the the dive that you were doing together with the pilot whale or with the with the polar bears, this this whole thing about getting the animals involved and looking at what they are enjoying versus what we think they should be doing or shouldn't be doing or what they enjoy or not enjoy. And so, and that's such an important point, right? Because even it's, it's an interesting part where sometimes as trainers, we train different behaviors to keep the animals occupied and interested. And, but we maybe do those behaviors only in the back. So they're not visible for the public because we don't necessarily want to send certain uh, messages or, you know, give certain uh, ideas. But because we want to keep the animals active and, and, you know, busy with all kinds of things, we train them things that they seem to really enjoy, even though they're not natural or, and so that's, I think you're making a really important point is that obviously doing hearing studies for polar bears is not something they would do in nature or the diving, but it doesn't mean that if you are engaging in different behaviors, uh, even if they're unnatural, that they cannot be very enriching and good for well-being. So I'm really glad you're bringing that up. And uh, and of course, today, you know, really paying attention to how our animals portrayed in, in any of the programs that we do. And so perhaps you have already spoken about uh, research and education. You have actually presented at many conferences and, you know, publishing. So perhaps you can talk to us a little bit about you know, the various topics and, and why it's so important that we communicate uh, inside our community and out. Okay, I, I would love to. I'd like to hit on one of the things you just talked about too, that uh, I, I worked at uh, a contract shows where we provide the sea lion and dolphins at uh, the Six Flags Park or what, whatever, uh, uh, Marriott's Great America, wherever. Um, we, the pools were not as big as I would have liked and the holding pools were not as big as I would have liked. So I tried to do different things um, for the animals and, and keep them stimulated. And uh, what we had to do is we had two dolphins would be in a, a smaller back pool while the bird show was going on. And then we come out and do the dolphin show. And so what I started doing with them is said, you can do whatever you want, as long as you don't repeat yourself, sort of be innovative. And they ended up loving it. They didn't really catch on right away. These animals were used to a certain routine and uh, uh, different things, but uh, eventually, you know, we got, you know, something like 10 different vocals. I didn't put them on a cue or anything, but as long as they didn't repeat themselves, we had a dolphin who would bow and then he'd bow three times. Then he'd bow and shake his flippers. So they they caught on to it. And it was something that would entertain them and uh, stimulate them, and uh, and make the back pool maybe not quite as boring. And I would give them a lot of attention. But as as far as papers and presentations, I think that's important. I didn't really mention it, but when I first got started in the business, uh, somebody who influenced me a lot was Karen Pryor and her book, Lad Before, Lads Before the Wind, um, doing chain behaviors last step first was very helpful. I love that. She was my first hero when I got into the business and uh, Bad Lysenik, who was uh, corporate training director, 
president, whatever VP, corporate VP too. Um, but back in the 70s, he was just a regular trainer like I was, but he wrote, uh, I gave a presentation on making learning fun. And that really struck me because let's make it fun for the animal, enjoyable, and maybe we can have fun too. And I, I liked that, that affected me and, and my continuing training. So some of the presentations I get was uh, like the care and hand rearing of walruses. <clears throat> I had a lot of experience hand raising walruses and uh, worked with the veterinarians making formulas. And then I would uh, document it so we could share it. I know Six Flags Discovery Kingdom used um, our formula, a very close replicate of our formula. And then it would have what you would expect after you know, three months, six months, the caloric requirements of the animal, we would figure that out, or I would figure it out. And uh, also the growth rate. So you knew kind of what to expect and what different stages they would go through. So that's <clears throat> good information for somebody who happens to be raising a walrus, even if they don't follow the formula exactly, or they want to do it a little differently, they, they at least have some guidelines that they can kind of follow. And then uh, as far as training enrichment of polar bears, um, we uh, provided uh, information on what was successful for us. And uh, what we did is we, uh, we had a lot of different enrichment items and focused more on enrichment than necessarily the training. We wanted the training to be a healthy process, but we weren't forcing it. And we were trying to provide them with a lot of different stimulation, not overstimulating them, but a lot of different stimulation to keep them active and rehearsing natural behaviors and not developing some of the bad behaviors that we might see at some of the zoos. So we used uh, a lot of information from uh, different people like Dr. Shepherson, Graham Law, Allison Ames, people who did research and had success with scatter feeds and different types of enrichment and different theories and stuff. So uh, we would shift the bears periodically. And this was for, in case there was an emergency, we'd get the bears off exhibit right away, any time of the day. And also made it where we could put different enrichment out on exhibit as well as um, put one animal out, then add another, take those ones off and put the other one out or just put all three out. And so sometimes maybe, I don't know, hypothetically, the animal might like to be on exhibit by itself. I don't know. Or the two girls would like to be together without the guy there. And uh, so we just tried to mix it up a little bit that way, put different enrichment out there, try to be creative with some of this enrichment. And when we brought them back in the dens, the dens was, we tried to keep it more enriching there. They got more of their food in the dens and uh, we did most of our training in the dens. So stuff, maybe foliage or, or whatever we couldn't put out on exhibit, we'd have in the back or some neat plastic enrichment, things that they really enjoyed, we'd have it in the back, keep in the back, very positive and uh, they rarely, if ever, refuse. So talked about some of our successes there. <clears throat> the introduction process that we did with the bears, we uh, had three of them. So we uh, had visual barriers up, slowly introduced the two girls. Then uh, 
Once they got along greatly, we slowly introduced the male to both girls because we didn't want him focusing just on one. And we were a little worried about what might happen. The male was much bigger than the females and uh, nothing happened. In fact, one of the females was the actual dominant animal there. And uh, we did it. I did enrichment of marine mammals and rescue and rehabilitation of pinnipeds, uh, neonatal care of pinnipeds, neonatal care of common dolphin, gray whale, the stranded marine mammals. You know, the caloric requirements for gray whale are quite different than a commerce and dolphin. So we included that information. The formula that we used was basic cetacean formula, but it might be a little different for a commerson than a gray whale and uh, gave talk at a stranded marine mammal rescue and care meeting and did a, a, a talk on managing a team of animal care specialists. I tend to be a servant leader and uh, had a cross-functional, meaning everybody did everything. They had areas that were their primary areas, but everybody took care of all the animals, whether it was polar bear, an Arctic fox or a seal or a beluga. And it was a multidisciplinary team, meaning we had bird, aquarist, trainers, animal care, and tried to treat it like a self-manager, self-directed team, because a lot of these people had a lot of experience and didn't necessarily need me to tell them what to do. And we were able to empower them and uh, they, they were pretty successful. So the, those are some of the papers that I've given. <laughs> that sounds great. I think especially, you know, I know like uh, from, from talking to you and following your work over the years that, you know, together with many others, you have contributed to so many different documents, including, you know, the, the polar bear best practice guidelines. And, um, but I think, you know, what you just mentioned the last paper about how do we, we talk about empowering animals, right? And about choices and control and getting to work together and, and, uh, and you know, to how do we do that also for people? So experienced people knowing what needs to be done and getting, you know, organizing their own day and how that can really, you know, benefit by instead of maybe having rigid, more rigid routines or in what way, you know, what criteria needs to be established there to, um, so perhaps can you talk to us a little bit more about, you know, how do we empower people? How do you do with regards to cross skill and how do you maintain quality? So what are some of the, your lessons learned over the years? Yeah, so um, a little bit off the subject is when I would interview, we'd have an opening at the Wild Arctic. Um, we'd have 30 people apply for it. And uh, I we would have to select one and in many cases, there would be at least five, if not 10 people who were qualified and would do a good job. Um, I would look at three things and experience, education, and people skills. And for me, it's easier to train somebody to force feed an elephant seal or make the dolphin jump or whatever it is than to teach people how to get along. And so, um, some of the people I would interview would be upset because they had more experience than this other person, but the other person presented themselves uh, as to be a better fit and have a little better people skills. So sometimes the person who had less experience and less education might get the job. So 
the thing that I was lucky is the people who were on my team had a lot of experience. And so um, taking care of the fish that would go into the, uh, into the polar bear pool, uh, the aquarist would primarily be in charge of that, but he'd teach the other people how, how to do that particular thing. And the trainers um, tended to focus more on training, but I also wanted to hear what the aquarist had or was thinking about what we wanted to do as far as enrichment or training with the bears. So I tried to keep everybody involved and go with some of their strengths. And I would oversee, but I wouldn't micromanage. So um, one of the situations, the Beluga team um, could not get a Ruby, an interesting Beluga whale that we got from the Navy um, on loan, um, couldn't get her to gate, you know. So I let them work on that for longer than probably other people would. But the important thing was they were working together as a team. They were talking and it was uh, making them more cohesive as a team. So it was important in that way. And I, I knew Ruby would eventually gate, but I wanted them, as long as they were communicating, working together and felt they were making progress, I was fine with it. So I, I would oversee it. Um, the other thing that helped us is we had uh, guidelines that we followed. We had your morning procedures, your closing procedures, your uh, harbor seal um, area, beluga seal area, your, your responsibilities were written out and documented. And uh, so um, they were there for you to follow and you knew what to do in those areas. And with the polar bear, the same thing. And we did safety um, training. We did shotgun training, getting off the subject a little bit. And we would do rehearsals. We'd sit down and talk about what if, if somebody got in with the bear? What if a bear got out? You know, we, we'd be with security and park ops. And then we do an announced um, response. And then we do an unannounced response. So uh, a surprise response. And then we debrief after each one of those things. So we we had things documented and uh, I would help. A uh, couple of the gals were training two different blue whales to come up on the scale and I watched them. And as long as, um, they may not do it the way I would do it, but as long as they had a healthy relationship and the process was a positive one, um, I let them go at it and eventually uh, they got a little frustrated. They weren't making enough progress. Then I would show them and tell them, I go, I don't think you're reinforcing the right part of this behavior. I think you want the animal to stop. You're bringing them all the way up and then he's just sliding all the way back. And we work together and I go, you have to be more patient with this particular whale. She has a, a, that type of behavior. <laughs> you're going to have to wait her out, but eventually she'll come up and you, as long as you make progress. And so I was able to help in those ways and uh, provide guidance with uh, the bears, uh, working the bears too. We don't wanna frustrate them. Uh, we don't want them getting bad behavior. So um, I think communication was the key. We had meetings uh, twice a week and uh, open. I tried to be open anyway. And people, we could talk about anything people wanted to. And I just, 
So you oversee it, but you don't micromanage it and everybody communicates and they know their main area and their, their secondary area. And we learned from each other. And uh, I did not see, uh, I, you know, it's always easier, Sabrina, if you and I did everything, you know, that would be easier. And I'm sure, I'm sure the results would be fine, but we can't do that. So we have to rely on good people making good decisions with our um, uh, cooperation or encouragement and collaboration in order to reach that final product. We took a walrus to the Jay Leno show and uh, we were getting a lot of heat because um, somebody wanted us to take this animal, this walrus there earlier. And I said, she's not ready. We were taking her to different places in the park so she'd be in unfamiliar territory and listen to us. She'd spend more and more time in the transport unit. We worked very hard to get her prepared for that, but she was not ready. And I, I ended up hearing from Brad Andrews. <laughs> you want to know why, why uh, I wouldn't let this animal go on uh, Jay Leno. And I, I told him, and I guess he was kind of okay with it. <laughs> and then eventually when we did go on Jay Leno, it was a good thing. It wasn't a walrus climbed off stage or knocked the slide over or, or did this, which had happened in the past, but uh, um, everybody worked together as a team and we all communicated and uh, got the job done. I, I hope that answered that question. <laughs> Don't get me talking. <laughs> oh, wow. There's lots of stories there. And uh, yeah, including taking walruses to the Jay Leno show, which Probably today we wouldn't do again, but I love all these stories of, you know, perspective. But the most important thing that you highlighted is working together for a common purpose, having good, you know, and trust and communication and really working through it together, learning from each other and, you know, supporting each other rather than micromanaging. And so obviously there's very clear guidelines and processes and procedures in place with criteria, but then there's a lot of space to you know, go and do the work and get it done. And there's so many different ways uh, to do it. So uh, yeah, I really love that. I was, th those are really great insights, especially I think as we wanna move more and more to this sort of working where it is about empowering the staff to organize their day, to organize their week or however they, you know, to obviously under the umbrella of an animal care and welfare strategy, but uh, this sort of empowering of people is as important as it is for empowering animals. And so you've already shared a ton of different stories of different animals, uh, whether it was research or, you know, thinking about habitat design and how to not only solve behavioral problems as perceived by people and their animals, but also about prevention, which is extremely important. Like how can we, you know, make sure or try and do as much as we can to prevent certain behaviors from some developing in animals. And so perhaps, you know, I know you've also worked with uh, oiled, you know, wildlife and, uh, and, and acted in that when there was an oil spill. So perhaps, you know, zoos and aquariums, contemporary zoos and aquariums, good facilities do a lot of different things. And, you know, part of having, of course, the skills and reaching out and going out to help wildlife is, is a big one of that in rehabilitation and specifics, of course, like oil. Uh, so perhaps can you talk to us a little bit about what happened and, and what you learned? 
Yes, I, I'd like to go back and just uh, what we were talking about. Um, I thought it was very important, not necessarily the end product, the behavior, but a healthy process with the bears, with the dolphins and whatever we were working with. Um, I worked at SeaWorld, we rescued a lot of animals and I was very much interested, as you know, in neonatal care. And we did get a lot of young animals. And uh, I worked on uh, not only rescuing them, but figuring out their caloric requirements for an elephant seal, for a harbor seal, for a walrus, for a sea lion, and uh, different steps. I, I think I talked about this earlier, that you know, with, within five weeks, we would have the harbor seal who would normally come to us and ma, ma, make their noise and everything. Then after five weeks, it was like, <laughs> like this. So they were ready for release, but uh, we knew that um, in five weeks, the animal would be weaned. And uh, with the sea lions, usually four months, with the walrus, nine months, you know, so the animals was all different, different caloric requirements. And so when we rescue animals, we would have different procedures that we would follow per the vets and we'd rehydrate them and uh, we'd get them started on formula, simple formula at first, and then add fish and sometimes heavy whipping cream and oil to increase the caloric concentration. And so I'd figure out their caloric requirements, figure out how much weight approximately they should gain and get a good idea of that. And I enjoyed putting those formulas and putting those guidelines together. And you talked earlier, they are guidelines, means there's flexibility. And I would share walrus guidelines with people and they would do it a little differently. And then I'd learn from them and maybe change our guidelines a little bit um, from, from what they learned. So I, I did enjoy that. And in 2015, we were involved in the Santa Barbara oil spill rescuing animals. I rescued a few elephant seals, started the initial cleaning. I was one of the persons that was certified to drive an oiled animal um, from Santa Barbara to SeaWorld where they could get a full-blown cleaning and rehabilitation. And we worked with the Oiled Wildlife Care Network through Davis, and they trained us and retrained us and uh, helped us quite a bit with that. Mostly I was rescuing and doing the initial cleaning. Um, and uh, one of the interesting rescues that I was involved with was Barnes Lake, Alaska. Nine killer whales were spending way too much time in Barnes Lake. Barnes Lake was uh, connected to the ocean or the bay and through a narrow channel. I, I don't know, maybe 20 feet across and then the tide would go up and down by at least 10 feet. So it'd either be a waterfall or an opening and there was a baby with the group and the group was not swimming out. Uh, I think they came in chasing fish, salmon or whatever it was and they depleted the fish there. So there was concern and the salinity was uh, very low and uh, so it was decided by the government, National Marine Fisheries, that we would move the animals out of there. So a number of us, people from Marine World, people from Sea World, National Marine Fisheries, and locals <clears throat> got together and uh, 
we used local boats and we had some poles sent to us and hammers and we're going to create acoustic barrier just after high tide so the tide would just start going out and we would surround this group of killer whales and make a it slowly move this sonic barrier um, towards the opening at high tide when the tide was just going out hoping that they would go through the opening and uh, we lost sight of them a few times <clears throat> but we seemed to kept them all together and it was really nice they they fa finally went through the opening and we saw them bowing taking off and everything it was really a nice feeling because sometimes you you try to do everything right and sometimes the result is is not always good but uh we did notice that there were seven whales uh, we knew one had died because we saw it on the beach but there might be one more uh, whale that we didn't get but apparently that whale had passed away too but uh so those have been neat stories and Alaska Sea Life Center rescuing walruses that we would eventually hand raise with their assistance and also um, beluga whale. There's beluga whale calf, um, beach yourself in Bristol Bay that Alaska Sea Life Center um, was taken care of. And some of us went out there and helped them with that. And, uh, you know, you, you end up working seven days a week. Uh, like I can't remember. We had four in the morning till eight in the morning shift or something like that. It was an eight hour shift actually, but, uh, maybe it was one in the morning till to eight, but, uh, you do that because um, uh, the stuff we learn from stranded animals and, and the oiled animals too helps us with not only our animals, but other animals out in the wild. And some of the research that we were talking about that uh, we do at these different parks and stuff only helps the animals out in the wild. But I, I think I covered that. <laughs> we'll probably talk too much. <laughs> no, it's great. There's just so many stories, right? There's way way too much for one podcast and uh, we could have a whole podcast just talking about yes you know training animals to participate in research that helps animals in the wild but also helps animals you know in human care and what have we learned from stranded animals that help care for animals in human care and yeah there's just so many things there and as we are almost you know coming to the end of this podcast i would love to hear a little bit more from you, you briefly mentioned, you know, your work as an accreditation inspector. So what, you know, for people who haven't heard, but what are accreditations about and why are they important? And what are some of the things that you look at from an animal perspective? Yeah, the, I started out as a facility inspector for the Alliance of Marine Mammal Parks and Aquarium. And it's a group who uh, tries to come up with best practices um, and, and it's a good idea because you don't want uh, USDA or, or somebody coming in and telling you what to do. So you want to manage the group yourself. I think there were at least 25 different parks and aquariums as part of it. So every five years, we go out and inspect different individuals, go out and inspect all these different parks and come back and, and present a, uh, a paper to, to the board. And um, 
review what they were doing. And uh, it was a great opportunity to learn from all these different parks, all these different people, as well as help each other. You know, we weren't there to punish or anything like that, but we were there to help each other, make sure that we're doing best practices and maybe we have some things that might help them. And maybe they'll present some things to us that we can share with the board. And that and I, I did that for, uh, geez, 10 years. And I was the, the chair of the accreditation committee too. So I oversaw like 60 inspections. And what we were looking at is the training and enrichment programs, you know, uh, water quality, spatial facility design, food quality and preparation, watch the animal behavior and the medical program and the welfare program. A lot of these facilities now are, are very good about having uh, a welfare program too, where um, somebody can have a concern or have a question having to do with animal welfare and uh, you address it, they, they address it, which we didn't always have. And also, um, consult for American Humane and do welfare audits as well. And uh, you, you learn a lot from different places and people. And uh, I remember the first time I went to Mexico, I was thinking, okay, you know, I, I don't expect it to be like the United States because I'm a stuck up gringo. But uh, I went there and I, I, I was so impressed with how clean it was, the training, the enrichment and their social um, involvement, I, I, I was totally knocked over by that. And you, you learned so much. And uh, I did do some volunteer work, uh, advisory council for Polar Bear International. And I learned from uh, going out there in the wild and seeing the, the change in the climate there and the effects it had on the ice and the environment and, and the polar bears. And you learned quite a bit from some of the uh, folks there, Ian Sterling, um, Stephen Anstrip, um, all those guys. So, so those, those are important and um, learn quite a bit. And uh, everybody is always, all these different parks are always um, excited to, to get the information and for you to share the information. Sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees and uh, and it's important as an inspector to you know establish a relationship with this park and these people so they're comfortable and uh, and everybody knows that it's not a negative thing it's a positive thing yeah it's about again about continuous learning all the time right we are reviewing as professionals what we do in our in our own facility and we do that together with others from other facilities so that we can continue to bring in the science bring in other practices so that we can continue to grow and really give the animals the best care and uh, and of course also in you know accreditation is uh, as you mentioned about a lot of different things and and animals are just one part of it but um, yeah so that we continue to really grow and it's important to bring in all kinds of different perspectives and people from outside so that we can really you know sometimes people say well you know there's there's a need for um a sort of um wait i'm going to rephrase here 
sometimes people say, you know, accreditation, you know, from an organization or an association can be a good thing because it's like people, you know, from the same organization talking to each other and, you know, protecting each other. But of course, you and I know, and as professionals, we know that it's really about, you know, constantly growing and, and seeing whether, you know, organizations and their practices adhere to the criteria set of an association. And, uh, and sometimes, yeah, it means that you have to go and fix things that aren't right. Or, and sometimes it also means that organizations lose their accreditation if they don't show up in the way that is expected. So it's a rigorous process and there's constant learning. So, and it's wonderful that you did that for such a long time. And, uh, and of course, you mentioned also American Humane, which is a more independent body. And so with this podcast, you'll have a few links so that if you want to follow up on, you know, the various organizations and what they do, then you can learn more there as well. And so, Bill, in conclusion of, the, of this podcast, can you briefly talk uh, about your company that you do after many, many years working for organizations, you now have an own consultancy company. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, well, I just use all the experience that I've had and uh, work with different aquariums, different parks um, uh, to do with caring for walruses, exhibit design for polar bears, um, yeah, training and enrichment programs, um, uh, training young walruses, dolphin training and enrichment, um, all that. And uh, I get to travel all over the place too. It's, it's, it's kind of fun. Um, so, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I just do what I used to do, but do it less frequently. The, I was going to talk about, you mentioned something, and I hope this is okay. You mentioned something about uh, experiences with different animals and stuff. And I, I have too many down here, but I, I just wanted to end on one. There was a young dolphin who uh, worked very well, learned quickly, and uh, she was born at the park and just was, was a real blast and a fast learner. And, and so, like I said, we, after the show or training session, uh, we go in the water with the animals and they could do whatever they want. This one dolphin, um, Misty was her name, would uh, let you rub her down and you play with her. And I, I started trying to pick her up, you know, just barely getting her out of the water and then dropping her. And she loved that. So she'd swim all the way around me, sit in front of me again for me to do it again. It was just like a kid, you know, again, again, again. So I'd pick her up and she was heavy and I I'd drop her. She was four years old. And I would drop her, barely taking her out of the water, drop her, and she'd swim around right in front of me again and again and wouldn't stop. And just, I had a lot of those because you had mentioned that, uh, Sabrina, um, different situations with uh, like the, the walrus pup that came from Alaska Sea Life Center that had lice and wanted to climb all over you. And if you left, you know, to warm the formula, it would, it would make a lot of noise. And then when you came back, uh, make a big fuss and want to climb all over you, really gregarious. There's a lot of neat uh, stories about uh, being in this business that was richly rewarding for me and a lot of other folks. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, you and I share that, uh, even though I have done a, a lot less uh, of that, but uh, 
when I was working at the heart of Agdofenarium, you know, we raised two young walruses. So yeah, they always had to like be in contact with you. If you would shuffle to the side, they would shuffle because they had to have some point of contact with you or climb all over you, which is okay if they're like 40 kilos, but not when they're 90 and so on. Yeah. So, and feeding them and, you know, their whole faces would be full of formula. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's really great. All these various stories and, I'm sure you could fill a podcast, you, you know, just of animal stories. And we'd love, you know, for you to share in closing, perhaps another story, a favorite memory or any of, of that you want uh, to conclude this podcast, Bill. Oh, well, there's, there's so many and they're, they're great, whether it's JJ, the gray whale or Pearl, the, the dolphin baby that we had to hand raise and, uh, and the experience with her was great. I'm thinking of Zap, a sea lion, um, young sea lion that I, I worked with, um, and we would walk them from the dolphin show because they stayed in the back of the dolphin show area. Their pens were there to the to the sea lion area, and then they had another pen there that we put them in for uh, a short amount of time before the show. And this Zap did not like this pen at all. You know, he didn't he didn't want to have anything to do with it, and, and he was a, a neat animal. Um, and a lot of fun. I used to swim with him and run around. We'd do chase and things like that. So I, I didn't know what to do to get him to gate, you know. And so, you know, you think of different things. Each animal is different. You have different strategies. Some things are not working. Other things, who knows? And so what I would do is I would go into his pen, close the gate, and not let him in. And so he'd go out and swim in the pool then come back and check on me. I open up the gate and have him target on my hand and put one flipper in the pen. And so I say, okay, get out, get out, get out. And I shut the gate. He'd go back in the water, swim around for a while, check on me again. And I let him a little further in and give him a couple fish. So he'd have both flippers on there and I'd have maybe do a couple behaviors. And I go, get out, get out, get out, shut the gate. And I did that pretty soon. He was in there with me eating you know, and we were doing stuff. I was rubbing him down. And then uh, I just got up and left and closed the gate and he stayed in there and I never had a problem with it after. It's just, he was an amazing and fun animal. I would do sessions with him with no food at all. He just wanted to work and then we'd run and play. So I run and he chased me and I'd swim, dive in the water. He'd dive in the water and we'd do that. We'd do a couple behaviors. Then we'd go do something else, keeping it real interesting. And I, I didn't have to use food at all. He was but a challenge, and I'll tell you, there was another uh, person who worked him when he went to a different park, and he, the the gentleman said, "I need your help. You know, I can't get Zap to do this, that, or the other." And uh, he was using a target pole, and he was getting frustrated, and threw the target pole down. And I go, "That's Zap." I go, "That's his personality." You're not going to change it. You know, you have to work with it. So it's just interesting. Um, he was a, a fun animal and, and to get him to gate like that, I don't know how I even thought of that. You know, you're just desperate, you're trying everything. But he was a special animal and as all of them are, and you and I have all kinds of stories and memories uh, that we'll never forget. Yes, exactly. And I love how, you know, it's like this reverse psychology of, uh, you know, like, no, 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 you're not allowed in here, you know, like, you know, like okay. <laughs> You know, uh, that totally works with me. So yeah, no surprise. 
that could work for Zap. And I love, you know, you have all these stories of these all these individuals because that's ultimately also right. You talk about, of course, animals in the wild and and individuals and species and conservation and so much also of our job and of our work or yeah I, I think it's like of our life is is about the all the individuals right that have enriched our lives as you said so beautifully whether it was JJ and uh, yeah I have such great memories of visiting SeaWorld and seeing you there and seeing some of the things that you've talked about today it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast and I can't wait to have you back for more stories and more <laughs> insights because obviously more than 40 years in this field cannot be captured in an hour. So thank you so much, Bill, for coming onto the podcast and sharing some of what all the incredible memories and work that you've done over the years. My pleasure. And, and thank you for all that you do for the animals as well. Thank you. Thank you.